voice you hear is Richard Nixon in the Oval Office in 1971, giving advice to a strapping young bureaucrat and former college wrestler named Don Rumsfeld. Dispensing career tips was Nixon's favorite thing, and in this case, he was brainstorming what part of the world young Rumsfeld could use to build his resume as a diplomat. In case you couldn't hear those last words, Nixon insisted to Rumsfeld, there's nothing you can do about the Middle East. And yet, 13 years later, Rumsfeld strode through the Republican palace in Baghdad to grip the hand of one Saddam Hussein. He was there both on his own and as a representative of the American government. His goal to offer U.S. support to Saddam for Saddam's war against Iran. There are a lot of conversation around that he's a madman and crazy and so forth. I don't happen to believe he is at all. He's a strong man. He's an intelligent man. Uh, he has a totally different value set than, than those of us in the United States. Iraqi cameras captured the meeting on video, and 20 years later, during the build-up to the Iraq War, the footage was played to Rumsfeld on CNN. December 20th, 1983, uh, you were meeting with uh, Saddam Hussein. I think we have some video of that. Tell me what was going on during this, uh, this Where video. Where did you get this video? A couple of days after he rewatched that video, Rumsfeld stood in the White House press room, cameras rolling again, as he laid out the case to invade Iraq and to topple his one-time partner and our one-time client, Saddam Hussein. Every day, every week, every month that goes by, his weapons of mass destruction programs are more fully developed, more mature. Every day that goes by gives him other opportunities to connect with terrorist networks. How exactly did Rumsfeld get from his coffee with Nixon in 1971 to his consultation with Saddam in 1983 to his showdown with Saddam in 2003? That story is part of a much bigger one, namely, how and why did Saddam ever get to be a friend and ally of America, only for us to then nominate him as global supervillain? Did Saddam turn on us? Or did we turn on Saddam? And what does all this reveal about why we really went to war in 2003? Because something tells you Rumsfeld knew the answer to that. When confronted with the footage of him meeting Saddam in the 80s, he didn't appear angry or irritated or ashamed. He simply said, Isn't that interesting? There I am. Welcome to Blowback, a podcast about the Iraq War. I'm Brendan James. And I'm Noah Colwin. And this is our first episode, episode one, Rosebud. The show is going to come out weekly, dropping every Monday. But for those of you who don't want to wait, all 10 episodes of the main show are available right now in Stitcher Premium. You can get there by going to stitcherpremium.com and signing up with the code BLOWBACK, one word, which gets you a free month of Stitcher Premium. You're going to get ad-free listening, access to all the Stitcher shows that they've got, and access, of course, to all 10 episodes of Blowback. Plus, we've got bonus episodes coming in the pipeline, several of which are only ever going to be accessible through Stitcher Premium. So you'll get those as well. So if you want to listen to all of Blowback right now or at any point over the next couple months, 
That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code BLOWBACK. One more thing is that uh, you might have noticed there's also an episode zero that's in your feed. Give that a listen if you haven't already, because it's a prelude to the rest of the show. We talk about why we're doing this and what we want to get out of it, what we want you to get out of it. And we introduce a lot of the characters that we'll be going on this perverse journey with. We get to know a little bit about Rumsfeld and Cheney and Condi Rice and Colin Powell and Paul Wolfowitz and all these goblins and ghouls that'll become very important for the story coming up. But once you have listened to that, this is the real first episode where we start our story. And it's called Rosebud because before we even get to 9-11 and the Bush administration and the actual war in Iraq, we want to find and trace the origin you know, of America's perverse relationship with Iraq. Right. And to appreciate the full horror and irony of what happened when we invaded Iraq in 2003, you have to go back a long, long ways to see where the story begins. And it's a story of British colonialism and Cold War politics and and then the rise of Saddam. Yeah, we're going to see this revolution happen in Iraq at the end of the 50s. And in that revolution, we're going to meet Two very important characters, one being Saddam Hussein himself, the other being Ahmed Chalabi, the self-appointed arch-nemesis of Saddam, who flees in the 1950s, his own country, and promises someday to come back with an American army and install himself as ruler. All right, let's do it. At the center of our world lies the Middle East, and at its very heart, the ancient land which is Iraq. Two great rivers span its length, the Tigris and Euphrates. Out of this ancient heritage, the citizens of one of the world's youngest nations are building a new life and a modern... It's doing the work for us. <laughs> no. We can, just, we can just leave that on. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1920, Winston Churchill shot off a letter complaining about an uprising in Iraq, which was currently under British dominion. And this is what he wrote. I am strongly in favor of using poison gas against uncivilized tribes. Gases can be used which cause great inconvenience and would spread a lively terror. And the mustard gas on this occasion was not available, unfortunately, but the British did what they normally did and bombed the shit out of Iraqis, men, women, and children, until... It was quiet again. Ageless Iraq is no longer a remote, isolated country. Today, she is a main junction linking the east and west. So in 1921, after this uprising, the British let the Iraqis have an election to install themselves a king. And it ended up being a guy named Faisal I. And and what was the election that got Faisal looked like? It was he, well, he ran as a single candidate, uh-huh. and he got ninety six percent of the vote. Sick. That's the thing with the British Empire is that it's sort of like British TV versus American TV, where they they did everything first. You know, The Office, chemical attacks, uh, divide and rule, but they did it very deadpan. Right. You know, it's just kind of ironic, and the American approach is a lot more earnest, and, and Jim and Pam get married, and Iraq gets to be a real democracy, you know, and the British are just like, fuck it, you have a king now, you voted him in 96%. <laughs> this is the original series, this is the UK, BBC, Iraq, yeah, BBC uh, Iraqi occupation. 
Now, a word about oil. The wealth in Iraq was absent until man found oil deep below the unproductive sand. The British took over Iraq from the Ottomans right around the time that oil was becoming the uber commodity that we think of it as today. And Winston Churchill, when he wasn't writing letters saying that we should gas Iraqis, helped negotiate a sweetheart deal for the company that would eventually become BP. And it transitioned the British Navy from the still dominant coal to oil. And it was a secret deal. This was right before World War I in a period called the Great Unrest, which was a nearly half decade of intense labor action and strikes. Churchill was one of the guys in charge of putting down those strikes. So converting to oil was one of those technological innovations that, you know, we think of like automation today that gave workers less leverage and less control over the production process. And oil was also a key part of imperial politics at the time, right? Like, Well, this is sort of when that happened. So in the early 20th century, you have these oil companies form a cartel, basically, and carve up Iraq. And they're going to end up running it just as much as any government for a long time. And they create a consortium called the Iraq Petroleum Company, which, contrary to its name, gives precisely zero shares to the nation of Iraq itself. Sheep stuffed with rice and a host of other good things. But that's only the first of the good things that will come to Iraq, thanks to oil. So after World War II, and in fact before that war was even wrapped up, America had already set its sights on the new enemy, the Soviet Union, which to American elites and military and captains of industry was a much bigger threat than the Nazis or fascism ever were. After that war, a now superpowered America began to take an interest in Iraq as well. Well, so that was what America really cared about in the Middle East at that moment was using Iraq as a bulwark against the influence of... Communism and socialism. What can we do about it? Every part of the world was going to be a front in our fight against the Red Menace, which is pretty rich because, uh, say, for example, in the Middle East, in the late 50s, the Soviets proposed a moratorium on any meddling in the region. This included an embargo on weapons, uh, pulling out all troops, closing all bases... And they offered this this more than once. And the Western powers patiently listened to this pitch and responded. How about new? So by the end of the 50s, Iraq functions as an outpost of British imperialism, a front in America's Cold War, and a valuable holding of the international oil cartel. How did this work out for, let's say, I don't know, people of Iraq? Yeah, not good. Uh, Aside from a class of local collaborators with the British... Iraq was incredibly impoverished. Not that it was a a poor country. It was generating loads of wealth. It's just that all that was going to the American and British oil companies. Meanwhile, actual Iraqis lived in squalor. Their government didn't care about them. Infant mortality was 250 per thousand. There were no social services of any kind, and life was getting grimmer all the time. So maybe that's why in July 1958, the Iraqis had decided enough was enough. It was time for a revolution, and the British-sponsored monarchy went down. Without warning, revolution has swept away the young King Faisal of Iraq. Explosive news from the Middle East. A military coup and mob revolt in Iraq topples King Faisal. Iraq becomes number one danger spot. People rose up all over the country, but the vanguard of this 1958 revolution was a free officer corps, a bunch of military nationalists, whose leader was a guy named General 
Kasim. Kasim was really imitating Nasser, the president of Egypt, who had done something similar in his country a couple years before. And Nasser is important here because he's the poster boy, the avatar of anti-colonial pan-Arab politics in the Middle East. Oil-rich Iraq, so vital to the Baghdad Pact, is temporarily at least in anti-Western hands. Meanwhile, back in America, President Ike Eisenhower and Vice President Richard Nixon held their breath and were preparing for a possible American military intervention to prevent any gains by the local Iraqi Communist Party. The Iraqi Communists called for provisions of bread, withdrawal of all foreign troops, democratic freedoms, things like that. One U.S. diplomat on the ground in Iraq wrote that the Communists had support because they, quote, had worked very hard and are extremely well organized. Veteran Premier Nouri S. Said is deposed. He has fled, and the Republican rebels have offered £10,000 for his arrest. So this guy, the Prime Minister, when the revolution finally came, he tried to flee, and uh, he was shot in the street, and his body was rolled over by trucks until it was a fine pink paste. People just kept running him over until he was, like, pink mist. Like, with, like, a steamroller? No, no, like the naked gun with Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father went the same way. So this uh, understandably made the uh, British and American governments pretty nervous. So they dispatched troops to friendly countries within the region. And the basic fear was that revolutions like the one that had just happened in Iraq would continue to crop up and spread and then unite under Nasser. Remember, Nasser was the first among equals in this anti-colonial movement that was happening in the Middle East. And that pretty soon, all of the friendly governments to Britain and America would be overthrown. Only one thing is certain. The Kremlin is jubilant. Khrushchev was quick to see in Nasser, the leader who could weld the Arab world into anti-Western unity. Now, it's in this moment that we meet two characters of our story, sort of the Batman and Joker, who were found on opposite ends of this revolution. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a Baathist. Saddam Hussein was 21 in 1958, the year of the revolution. And he had grown up in the country in the middle of Iraq. He was a country boy near the city of Tikrit. And it was a lot like the country anywhere. A lot of people carried guns wherever they went, and local loyalties and connections counted for a lot. And a year before the revolution, Saddam had joined an up-and-coming political movement called the Ba'ath Party. And let's pause here to talk about what the Ba'ath was, because it's going to become very significant to our story. The Ba'ath Party was in a couple countries in the Middle East. They'd eventually split off and have rivalries. And their ideology was just kind of a hodgepodge, you know? It was a little bit nationalism, pan-Arabism. It was a little bit socialism. That's not to say communism, because if the Ba'ath was one thing, it was anti-communist. Yeah, that was the glue that held them together and would ultimately form the base of their support from abroad and internally was the fact that they were the most effective anti-communists. I kill a communist for fun. But for a green card, I'm going to carve him up real nice. And they weren't really ever a popular party. And they didn't claim to be a popular party. Yeah, its message was that of renaissance for the Arab world, and it would have cells that would come to power, you know, of both parties. Right. And, and this included like military officers and people from the professional and upper classes, but yep. it was not a mass movement. Yeah, that's true. Um, and the ideology we'll see is going to twist and turn and largely end up serving the leaders of the Ba'ath party rather than the other way around. For his part, Saddam later said that he became a nationalist and not a communist because uh, social divisions where he grew up 
were not that significant. Quote, I never felt at a social disadvantage, even I, a peasant's son. Now, the Ba'ath Party are going to turn big time on General Kasim. But in these heady days of July 1958, they're still basically on the same side, kicking out the hated British puppet regime. So while Saddam was cutting his teeth in this new revolutionary political situation by joining the Ba'ath Party, the man who would one day uh, flatter the Bush administration into war with Iraq in 2003 was having a very different experience of the revolution. Ahmed Chalabi was born in Baghdad in 1944, and he grew up about as far from Saddam's circumstances as you could probably get. He was the ninth and final child of an incredibly prominent, wealthy Shia business family. And his father had connections with the British and the monarchy and Shia leaders all throughout Iraq. Chalabi was 14 when the revolution broke out in Iraq. And his biographer, R.M. Rostin, writes that at this time, Chalabi was pampered, happy, and studious. And he never saw the squalor and misery that his fellow Iraqis were living under that we described before. Rostin writes, from his childhood perspective, waist high to the wealthy and well-educated, this Iraq was an eclectic and tolerant place. So for young Chalabi watching it all come crashing down with this revolution, it sparked his lifelong obsession, not only to restore this fictional Iraq of his memories, but to be the one in charge of it next time. And a relative told Chalabi's biographer, if you're looking for Rosebud, like Citizen Kane, look to the 1958 revolution. Because much as they wanted it, Chalabi and his family did not get their American invasion that year. But he'd spend the rest of his days working on that. So, by the end of the 50s, we've seen Iraq go from being a British possession to becoming an independent state under the nationalist military regime of General Qasim. Unfortunately for Qasim, he didn't really end up pleasing anybody during his short few years in power. He pissed off the Americans and the British by nationalizing a lot of Iraqi oil. He also pissed off the Ba'ath Party by not going far enough and being more revolutionary like Nasser. And he also pissed everyone off by having communist friends in and out of government because he needed a popular base of support to do the things he wanted to do. We should also probably mention that at this point, Baghdad is skirmishing, if not outright going to war with the Kurds. And let's, uh, for people who don't know, let's let's clarify who the Kurds are right. in the, Iraq. The Kurdish people are a cultural and ethnic minority that live mostly in northern Iraq, but there are Kurdish people in Syria and Iran and other countries Turkey. in the region. Yeah. And we'll see all types of horrific confrontation between Baghdad and the Kurds coming up. But at this point, they're kind of on the same side as everyone else, including the Ba'ath, in wanting to get rid of Qasim. Hard cut. October 7th, 1959. You have a dashing... Let's just be honest. We've seen the photos from him. He's in the, hot. In the books. He's looking good. In his he looks age. really good. A dashing young Saddam Hussein, who at this point is 22, with a machine gun in hand in Baghdad, downtown Baghdad, waiting for Qasim's car to come rolling down the street. And he's part of a, a larger kill team of six other guys, and they're going to really do the deed, but he's going to provide cover for his comrades. And to be clear, I don't believe that he was actually supposed to be there in the original plan. 
That's true. He was a last minute call up. Yeah, he was. He was that's, like somebody got somebody got sick. Yeah, and he was the guy that they pulled up. So like this was not. This was, these were not like you know CIA trained expert death squads. This was rather rather amateurish. Yes, these were. This was the JV team of uh, of coup of coup plotters. Yeah. It was so amateurish, in fact, that they didn't kill Kasim. And who did they kill instead? Uh, they killed one of their own guys. As Adil Darwish and Gregory Alexander talk about it in their book, uh, Unholy Babylon, they were organized around the car, and they pulled out their guns, and they started shooting. The aim was terrible, which is like explains why there were some people caught in their own crossfire, right. but also there were guns that jammed. Right. So the whole thing, from the moment that they tried to carry out this assassination attempt and then Kasim went to shit. Instant fail. So Kasim was hit, though. He was hit in the shoulder and the arm, and, you know, he was pretty gravely wounded. He ended up surviving. His driver did not. Saddam, either, I mean, probably through his, his own partners, was hit in the leg. And he's, he scrambles, he flees. We know he was being hunted by the intelligence services, and he escaped to Cairo through Syria. And, uh... There, he was remembered alternatively by different people as a stoic straight edge um, and a troublemaker and a deadbeat. And again, who's to say? Notably, Palestinian journalist Saeed Aburish believes that this is around the time when he was in Cairo. Saddam became in touch with the local CIA station uh, to further any general kind of plans or schemes against Qasim. Well, yeah, because even though this hit didn't work, the CIA still wanted him gone. The Baathists wanted him gone. Correct. Other Arab leaders wanted him gone. Let's whack this cocksucker and be done with it. In spring of 62, John F. Kennedy asked the CIA to begin plotting for Kasim's overthrow. And, you know, I don't know how, how exactly that conversation went down. Ask not what the Baath Party can do for you, but what you can do for the Baath Party. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> now, Kennedy's go-to man was Archie Roosevelt Jr., who was one half of a CIA spook brother duo with Kim Roosevelt, who engineered the coup in Iran in 1953, which is a real dream team brother. The Kubi brothers. Yeah. And uh, by the way, look up their photos. They both look like absolute freaks. Wait, hold on. Let me, uh, it's, uh, can I pull this yeah, up? Yeah, you can pull it up. All right. I'm going to keep going. The CIA's Health Alteration Committee, which is a real, uh, that's a real thing, sent a poison handkerchief to Kasim, or some people say one of his colonels, in an attempt to send a message. That handkerchief did an Egyptian to my mother give. What happened next will shock you. The streets of ancient Baghdad become the scene of a short but decisive revolution that topples the pro-communist government of Premier Abdel Karim Qasim. February 1963, on Ramadan, military officers allied with the Ba'ath carried out a temporarily successful coup. But it was successful enough that they executed Kasim on live TV. Well, it's the hallmark of any successful coup, really. Right. Once you have TV, in the yeah. picture, you got to do the <laughs> execution. Have, yeah. <laughs> uh, and his corpse was buried in a shallow grave and chewed up by dogs. Um, so the Ba'ath Party had arrived. Now, the big question here, how involved was the CIA in the overthrow of Kasim and the rise of the Ba'ath Party? Because this is the ascension of Saddam Hussein's party, the one that he will take over and then rule Iraq for the next several decades until the Americans invade in 2003. So if we had anything to do with helping them or installing them, that'd be pretty fucking goofy, wouldn't it? This is what a Ba'ath Party secretary uh, said in an interview in the 90s. Quote, we came to power on a CIA train. James Critchley, who was once the CIA's head of 
the Middle East at the time of the coup. Quote, we watched the Ba'ath's long, slow preparation to take control. We really had the T's crossed on what was happening. We regarded it as a great victory. And they had definitely developed assets by 1961, of which Saddam was probably a junior example. And this is an anecdote, but uh, a friend of mine who's from Kurdistan, he said his dad saw a friend of his or an acquaintance of his at like the market one day back in the 60s. And the guy was like, uh, yeah, hey, I, I actually just joined the Ba'ath Party. And, you know, these are people who are members of the ethnic minority. And so his dad was like, what What the fuck? Why would you do that? They're, they're nationalists. They hate us. And he went, well, I did it because I'm getting a stipend from the CIA now. <laughs> so I think... The, yeah, the, I subscribe to the CIA's Patreon. Yeah. The, the presence of the CIA, I think we can definitely say, was um, confirmed uh, at, at, the, at the very least. And one thing is for sure, which is that when the coup was complete... Baathist death squads rolled up their sleeves and began, as the British put it, quote, winkling out the communists. The new government, which promises a modification of Qasem's bitterly anti-British, anti-American, and anti-Nasser policies, has been emptying the jails of political prisoners and replacing them with communists, rounded up since the revolution. Up to 5,000 were killed following the coup in 63, and about 15,000 rounded up in total. And the new Ba'ath government worked with the Iraqi Petroleum Company in sending political prisoners to concentration camps. When they are found, the communists from other countries are deported. Native Reds are sent before firing squads. As the Arabs show, they are more concerned about the dangers of communism than is realized. A U.S. diplomat put it a little more um, sociopathically. <laughs> Quote, we were very happy. They got rid of a lot of communists. A lot of them were executed or shot. This was a great development. So while all this is going on in Iraq, like the bots have taken power and like Kasim is gone and they're going to work on the communists. Like where's Saddam? Uh, Saddam at this point has arrived back in Iraq from Cairo. Uh, back in Iraq, back in the New York groove. Back in the Baghdad groove. Saddam at this point had <laughs> arrived back in Iraq. Uh, and he was now starting to climb the party ladder. There's tell from both his own myth-making and then the myth-making of his enemies that he was like presiding over the torture uh, rooms and putting people in acid and stuff. And I, I don't know if we can, again, trust either rather cinematic uh, telling of, of what he was doing around this time. We do know that uh, around this time, he married his lovely wife, Sajida, and they started what would become a very close-knit and loving family. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Whatever the degree of CIA involvement, the U.S. government made contact with the Ba'ath hours after the coup and pledged recognition for the new regime. And in April, we started shipping them arms, which the Ba'ath would use to hack away at the Kurds. By this time, the Soviets were providing support for the Kurds against Baghdad, which made the Kennedy administration back the Ba'ath party even more than they otherwise would have. And that summer... The USSR actually suspended military aid to Iraq, and they went to the UN and called the Ba'ath Party a fascist, quote, regime that was committing, quote, genocide, which, of course, are charges that rather insincerely we're going to hear from the U.S. decades and decades later uh, after this instance of us completely supporting them. Okay, I call this segment, um, what the Christ is wrong with the Kurds, Bob? <laughs> um because NBC News projected Richard Nixon, the 37th president of the United States. In 1968, the Ba'ath Party took power again, as did Richard Nixon 
and Henry Kissinger. Having lost a close one eight years ago and having won a close one this year, I can say this. Winning's a lot more fun. (laughs) The big picture at this moment is that the British are getting out of the Gulf states, winding down imperial commitments. Mm -hmm. Nasser is dead in 1970. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadat is who takes his place in Egypt. Right. And it's largely a reaction to Nasser, his assumption of power, and he expels a bunch of the Nasserites. So Pan-Arabism is, is no longer... On the wane. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's not the force that it once was. Yes. R.I.P. Shout out. Yes. Moscow, meanwhile, is like retaining influence in a couple different pockets in the region, but functionally, the story is still one of what the Americans are then doing. Yes. It means that they have to find their boys. Yes. And one of those boys is definitely going to be the Shah of Iran. You know that fat cocksucker says I look like the Shah of Iran? I never got that at all. That piece of shit. His Imperial Majesty Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi of Iran begins a three-day visit to Washington. U.S. presidents from Kennedy to Carter regarded the Shah as the ideal ruler to secure the interests of the West in the Gulf area now that the British had left. The portrait of Iran today, especially today, is that of the Islamic Republic, but that did not yet exist in the Nixon years. Iran was still a secular monarchy and a dictatorship, thanks to our coup that we did there in 1953. So under the Nixon doctrine, the Shah was a great partner of the U.S. He was also a huge piece of shit. Demonstrators protest outside the West Berlin Opera House, where the Shah of Iran, with Empress Farah, attends the performance of Mozart's Magic Flute. Denouncing the Shah as a murderer who arrests, tortures, and kills political opponents, the crowd clashes with Berlin police. During the Nixon years, and in fact beyond his resignation, Kissinger in the 70s pursued a policy of triangulation between Iran and Iraq, who both hated each other and were sniping over uh, pieces of territory and access to the Gulf, and the Kurds, to whom we gave a shitload of money and guns and outright encouragement in their war against Baghdad for independence. The Shah loved this because it was a way to tie down and embarrass his neighbor and rival in Iraq. For the past six years, Galala has been on constant alert for the daily whine of Iraqi jets overhead. It's the main supply center for the Kurdish warriors, or Peshmergas as they call themselves. The name means those who are prepared to die, and hundreds of them have died for what they now call the liberated area of Kurdistan. But in early 1975, Saddam, who is now the clear strongman in Iraq, even though he was still technically number two, slipped to Algiers with the Shah, and with American mediation, the two hammered out a deal to play nice and stop sniping at each other. This was a big victory for everybody except for the Kurds, who were on the eve of facing a brutal campaign from Baghdad. And after all those years of being encouraged and supported by the U.S. and the Shah, their former benefactors said, oops, gotta go, and left them to slaughter. Little Paulie was good to go. Fuck a car never came. They left him waiting outside his house like an asshole. What was the U.S. saying about Saddam in the 70s? Like, what was, what was, what was Saddam actually doing at this moment domestically? He was increasingly taking, taking hold of the right levers of power that you would need if you ever wanted to, say, stab your boss in the back in oh, 1979 weird. and um, take over. But more broadly than that, Saddam was one piece of a very successful, it has to be said, Ba'ath administration in the 70s. Uh, Iraq, through no shortage of oil wealth, but also some quasi-socialism that was well-administered by by the party, it became probably the most dynamic and, if you like, progressive state in the Arab world. 
And I'm just going to real quick throw it to our friend Ra'ed. Um, he's an Iraqi political advocate and activist who we've interviewed uh, for a lot of different things on this show. Here he is talking about this you know, version of Iraq that used to exist. The economy was blooming there. Um, Iraq was becoming a, a major regional power. So things were stable. Uh, there was definitely a political dictatorship. But outside of politics, uh, life was uh, okay. Um, the government provided Iraqis with basic services. Um, Iraq had one of the best um, education systems, um, one of the best health systems in the region. It basically just became one of those success stories of a third world country, you know, post-colonial, that managed to turn its, its natural resource wealth into a thriving economy. And one thing Saddam did visibly, even though he was still at this point only number two in the party, is that he fully wrenched the Iraqi oil reserves away from Western companies. And so that was a hugely populist and nationalist move that he would be uh, dining out on for the rest of his days. There was also a CIA memo to talk about what, what the Americans thought. They say he's a shrewd, ruthless operator, adept at keeping his opponents off balance. I feel like there's somebody we should check in on. Yes, Ahmed Chalabi in the 70s, while all this stuff was going on back in Iraq, he had moved to Lebanon and had become a professor at the American University of Beirut. And he was a mathematician. And he's apparently uh, quite bright in this field. But the Lebanese civil war that was raging in the 70s started to get a little bit too hot for him, and he packed up and left and took up his real birthright as one of the many corrupt children running the Chalabi banking empire. He relocated to Jordan and founded a bank called Petra Bank. And in 1978, the bank's assets were $40 million, and by 1982, they were $400 million a tenfold increase. And he built a big mansion and started to uh, make friends with a lot of Western journalists and think tank people and politicians, many of whom will come in handy in the, uh, in the Rolodex several years later. But one person in Petrobank recalled during its boom times, you could determine something was not kosher. This will all erupt next episode. Suffice to say, not for the last time, Chalabi had shed his skin and gone from professor to one of the most powerful economic influencers in the Middle East. So by 1979, Saddam has a peace deal with the Shah and another campaign against the Kurds behind him, warming relations with America, particularly with the CIA, which, oh, look at that, was run by George H.W. Bush whose son W around this time was uh, around this time, I think forming an energy company with bin Laden's brother. Uh, (laughs) So starting to come into his own, but Saddam, this is when he really became the man he'd be for the rest of his life. It was the year that he made his big move. It was July, 1979. And he simply approached Hassan al-Bakr, who was his cousin. He's the guy, I mean, he's the head of the Ba'ath Party. He's the de facto head of state. President Ahmed al-Bakr has become little more than a figurehead. And according to Saddam's propagandists, too old and ill to govern. And Saddam told him, uh, you look ill. You should really take it easy. And let me uh, let me cover the presidency for you. I think you'll be better that way. And Bakr was like, no, I feel fine. Oh. I have to go now. What happened next is referred to as the Ba'ath Party Purge. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Saddam called a emergency assembly of Ba'ath Party officials and leaders. He sat in a crowded hall at the front of the room, chomping a big cigar. 
and informed everybody that regrettably he had discovered the existence of a Syrian-backed plot inside of the Iraqi Ba'ath Party to overthrow him and the legitimate leadership of the country. Out was trotted an unfortunate man who, behind the scenes, had opposed Saddam's seizure of power. Clearly having been tortured, he read from a piece of paper a confession that he had indeed been part of a plot. And this was all spooky enough, but then he began to read off a list of names of people who were in the hall who were supposed co-conspirators. And this was all videotaped. Some protest their innocence, but are quickly hauled away. Others in the assembly begin to weep and chant proclamations to his greatness and declare absolute loyalty to his rule. Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers, Iraq and Iran, we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war, to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf, and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As Saddam's rise to power in Iraq in the 1970s was being cemented, Things were getting dicey for America's best friend in the region, the Shah of Iran. As Iran's urban population was exploding, rents were getting higher, inflation was becoming a bigger problem, and civil services more generally across the country began breaking down. Although Iran bought into Western companies and invested millions in Asia and Africa, many Iranians remained poor and illiterate. Agricultural performance was low, industrial productivity disappointing. In the towns, the pockets of poverty were obvious. Sheep wandered among the debris of over-rapid urbanization. These were the conditions in which the Islamic Revolution in Iran took place. Residents, revolutionaries, soldiers, driving through the streets, waving pistols, rifles, machine guns. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. On the 16th of January, 1979, the Shah left Iran. He was never to return. Led by Shiite clerics, religious conservatives for the most part, but representing a broader coalition across society, yeah. they took the place of the Shah in 1979. For Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran marked the end of 15 years in exile. In an obvious reference to the United States, he said, foreign advisors have ruined our culture and have taken our oil. Saddam saw an opportunity for himself. On September 22nd, 1980, about a year after the revolution, Saddam, after a few weeks of lower-level skirmishes, finally pulled the trigger on an invasion. The immediate justification for the war was control over the Shat al-Arab waterway, which is what divides Iran from Iraq and Iraq southeast. Although Iraq and Iran had signed that 1975 agreement that we mentioned earlier, and that agreement had put the border squarely down the middle of the waterway, 
that was practically ancient history to Saddam by 1980, given that the Shah was no longer running Iran. In fact, it was Ayatollah Khomeini who was running Iran. Why did either of them want the waterways so badly? I mean, it was it leads out into the Persian Gulf, and it's an incredible and important conduit for oil shipping routes. They thus control a huge conduit for the most valuable natural resource that dictates both of these national economies. This is also, this maneuver was a response to perceived threats on Saddam's end. Iraq is mostly a Shia country, and Saddam is part of a Sunni sect that rules the country, and thus it's natural that he's kind of terrified of a Shia revolution next door. While there was never the same kind of energy to follow Khomeini's revolution in Iraq, there were still religious elements that were calling for an uprising. In fact, Muqtada al-Sadr, who is the cleric in Iraq today with a huge populist following, his father-in-law called for an uprising in 79, not so that Iraq could become like a client state of Iran and they could be best friends with Khomeini um, and, and the clerics in Iran specifically, but it was obviously dynamically they wanted something similar and he wanted it for Iraq and uh, Saddam put him to death. Yeah, this is an early look at what will become a very key part of this show, which is from literally one generation of al Sadr's to the next, uh, the oppression and radicalization of certain Iraqi Shia groups and leaders, all of whom Saddam considered subversive. And, you know, there's also a kind of general sense among Arab leaders throughout the Persian Gulf at this moment who are looking at Iran and are thinking, fuck, what if I'm next? Because this was a Shia power center that was not under the control of their friend and benefactor, the U.S. Certainly the United States was not happy to see the emergence of the Islamic Republic of Iran. No. And if you're Saddam and you are looking to prove that you are somebody that the U.S. wants to engage with and that the U.S. wants to invest in and nurture and support, then going after the people at the top of the U.S.'s shit list is probably a good way to do it. And whoever wins this war gets to be the dominant power in control of, I mean, effectively oil distribution networks in the most critical space of oil production in the entire world. And that's obviously no small prize. So the stars are basically aligned against Iran here, particularly for Saddam to make a move with the acquiescence, if not outright encouragement, behind closed doors of the United States. Yes, and the UN, when the Security Council convened in September immediately after the invasion happened, the Western powers intervened quickly to prevent the Security Council from putting out a statement that would have actually directly condemned Saddam. The Iranians, obviously not incorrectly, began to think like, huh, everybody's putting their thumb on the scale against us, which actually would later turn out um, during the hostage crisis and the occupation of the American embassy in Tehran um, that the Iranians would actually find intelligence that would actually later go on to confirm their suspicions about what the U.S. Uh, really supported here, even if publicly everybody was saying like, oh, geez, what a, what, a, right. what, a, what a pickle this is. Right. Iranian resistance crumbled in the early days to the advancing Iraqis. There are signs now that they might not be having it all their own way, but in this sector at least, the Iraqis are jubilant. Initially, it seemed like the Iran-Iraq war might actually be a short one. The word blitzkrieg gets used a lot uh, to describe Saddam's strategy. Saddam actually, in fact, had hoped to emulate the Israelis, who, because of really, really smart air power usage in 67, were able to win the Six-Day War in six days. 
But the Iran-Iraq war would become, it's the closest that we're ever probably going to come to a second version of World War One. Generally, the line that's used to describe the Iran-Iraq war is that it was the longest conventional war of the 20th century. Now, these initial air attacks that Saddam wanted to uh, use to punish Iran, they didn't work. And so then Saddam switched and, and changed the focus to a 100,000 man strong ground offensive, which was stopped by the Iranians at a certain point who had also studied the Israelis and had studied where the Israelis had screwed up in the Yom Kippur War and, and had been able to stop Saddam's advance. And so what was initially like supposed to be like the Saddam week-long victory campaign thing, uh, it did not turn out that way. A dawn raid by Iranian jets, signaling that Iraq does not have it all its own way in this war. By late October 1980, about a month after Iraq first invaded, the war had reached a stalemate, and a month after that point, Iran had begun successfully executing a naval blockade of Iraq. So rather than risk losing standing, Saddam committed himself to what would become this long, drawn-out war. You gotta commit. Exactly. There was no backing down. The Iranians launched a counteroffensive to take back what territory they had lost, and Iranian-backed Kurds opened up a new front of war against Saddam. Right, in the north of Iraq. As is always the case with the Kurds in Iraq and Iran-Iraq tensions, the Kurds are, uh, have, are, are re-weaponized precisely at the point at which it becomes convenient for somebody to do that. As this is going on, there's obviously like a, a whole other series of like geopolitical tensions and concerns with Iraq, the biggest of which is about... Iraq's efforts to acquire a nuclear weapon, which they were doing with the help of uh, the Italians, but primarily the French. And in 1981, Israel, which was the biggest hater of Iraq's nuclear program as the only other existing nuclear power in the Middle East, um, bombed and destroyed Iraq's nuclear reactor called Osirak in June of 1981. And ironically, destroying Iraq's uh, nuclear ambitions, at least at that point, proved to be incredibly important for the Iraqis. The French historian Pierre Rizou had this to say about it, quote, it was only once Iraq lost any hope of having nuclear power, thereby limiting the risks of proliferation in the region, that Washington and Moscow considered reestablishing their ties with Baghdad. Because up until then, you know, a Another desperate nuclear power in the Middle East was not something that either Moscow or Washington really wanted to deal with. That changed. But even before Osirak, there was in the bombing, there, there were signs that Washington was warming up to Saddam because of the invasion. In 1981, for example, William Eagleton, an American diplomat in Iraq, wrote in a cable to Washington, uh, to the recently elected Reagan government, saying that, quote, we now have a greater convergence of interests with Iraq than at any time since the revolution of 1958. A year later, the State Department would remove Iraq from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Woo. And, you know, when after the Osirak bombing happened, King Hussein of Jordan, you know, probably the West's favorite, you know, like still existing colonial ruler functionally, um, he got in touch with Saddam and let him know that the West would be opening to a general softening of relations. And Moscow started delivering dozens of fighter planes to Iraq that it had previously held up. So by 1982, there had been an Iranian counteroffensive that kind of brought this war to this place of stalemate. And it's at this point that we should probably talk about the gas. Mustard gas and nerve agents were delivered by small, innocent-looking planes based near Baghdad. At first, the scale of its use surprised the Iranians, who were forbidden by Ayatollah Khomeini from following suit. Beginning in 1983, Iraq had begun using deadly gas attacks against Iran, starting with mustard gas, which you might know about from World War I. Between 1983 and 84, Donald Rumsfeld, a guy, 
he made two visits to Iraq. Part of the Reagan administration's efforts to beef up its relationships with Saddam's regime. Here's Rumsfeld later talking about it. Iran had taken hostages, our American people in the embassy. And it seemed logical to uh, President Reagan and Secretary Schultz and to me that we ought to at least try to, to uh, develop a better relationship with Saddam Hussein. During Rumsfeld's second trip to Iraq in March 1984, a United Nations report was released and it concluded that Iraqi forces had begun using chemical weapons in the fight against Iran. Um, we had a good visit. And shortly thereafter, we did reestablish relationships with Iraq. The Americans, they were not only okay with Iraq's use of chemical weapons, but they would actually later provide intelligence to Iraqis to help them use those chemical weapons more uh, effectively. We also sold him chemical weapons. Yes. The Iraqis got this capacity in the first place for chemical weapons from the West. Part of this was because of steps that Saddam had taken to, quote, desocialize the Iraqi economy, moving it away from a centrally planned economic model and letting in Western businesses. And as part of this, and as, as this general trend, Iraq began developing very expansive business relationships with all sorts of Western companies that would sell him the stuff that he wanted to buy. So just a, a short list of the countries that uh, would sell him this like arms and stuff, you know, it, it includes. This isn't going to be good. No, no, no. It's it's uh, West Germany, Spain, Britain, France, Norway, Italy, Switzerland, Austria, and the Netherlands. Germany is actually a particularly funny case because the West German government would sell chemical weapons and materials to Iraq. And then they would sell the protective gear against those things to the Iranians. Yeah. And for America's part, in the mid-80s, the U.S. Commerce Department rubber-stamped shipments to Iraq of anthrax and insecticides, which everyone knew was being used for chemical weapons. That was discovered in a Senate Banking Committee report in the 90s. The UK is also kind of funny, too, because basically the a British-Iraqi arms scheme would later bring down the Tory government of John Major in the 1990s and thus create the opening for a certain man <laughs> named Tony Blair, who uh, had some business with Saddam Hussein many, many years later. You know, and look, we, we, were the, we backed Saddam Hussein to the hilt and cared a lot about him. But also, we let the Israelis sell weapons to Iran. Yeah, we should mention that while this is this is a tough section because there's so many layers happening here. Yeah. Because, let's see here, you have the U.S. giving Iraq intelligence and arms and chemical weapons so they can fight their enemy, Iran. Then you have Iran-Contra where we sell Iran arms so we can use the money to fund right-wing death squads in Nicaragua. Then our ally, Israel, bombs Iraq to destroy their nuclear but capabilities. But then we also but give they're Iran also the intelligence that is about Israel Iran but none of this is really contradictory at the end of the day, because ultimately the goal of the U.S. is not for anyone to triumphantly win, but for both Iraq and Iran to end up exhausted and weak and ultimately still under the thumb of American global domination. Eventually, however, the U.S. started to put its thumb on the scale on behalf of Iraq. American satellites had actually picked up Iranian troop movements in 1987, suggesting a substantial Iranian offensive would be coming the following spring, aimed directly at a major hole in the Iraqi front lines. The hole would have allowed the Iranians to perhaps capture Basra, Iraq's largest city close to the Persian Gulf, and it would have given Iran control of the oil fields and the shipping routes that the war was initially started over in the first place. A retired Air Force colonel 
told journalists late many years later that he had seen a direct message on the subject written by Reagan himself, and it said an Iranian victory is unacceptable. After supplying Iraq with valuable intelligence on Iranian targets, mapping out what the Iraqis would need to do to attack Iran, Saddam launched a sarin gas attack on Iranian forces, and it worked. From 1987 onward, the use of chemical weapons would actually explode. In fact, CIA estimates suggest that two-thirds of all Iraqi chemical weapons uh, used came after that year until the war ended the next year. By March 88, Iraq would actually go farther than it ever had before in its brutality. A key front that's while well, this is going on for the, for the Iran-Iraq war is the Kurdish front. In this is northern Iraq. Different Kurdish factions had different relationships of varying warmth with Iran. You know, left-wing groups were more Iran skeptical, but generally speaking, the Kurds were, as ever, caught between Iran and Iraq. And as the war drew on, the Kurdish front along Iraq's northeastern border with Iran became a very particular area of focus for Saddam. In 87, Saddam launched the Onfall campaign, which is now pretty much commonly described as a genocide against the Kurds. Estimates generally put the number of Kurdish dead at between 50,000 and 100,000 people. Though the Onfall campaign came toward the end of the Iran-Iraq war and was prompted by Iranian military action, it was the latest in a series of Baathist efforts, like a a kind of Saddam effort to Arabize, quote-unquote, Iraqi cultural and ethnic minorities like the Kurds, the Assyrians, and and Yazidis. Why would the Iraqis do it to the people? They did it to us also. To us is okay. We are enemies. Okay, we are fighting together. But why to his own people? In March of 88, the Iranians had made a pretty substantial push to damage Iraqi electrical infrastructure in this region near the Kurdish front. And they actually made it pretty far before being beaten back by Iraq. In response to Iran's limited success, Saddam decided that a show of fear was necessary. Saddam ordered Hassan al-Majid, a cousin of his who was in charge of these Kurdish regions, to raise the small Kurdish city of Halabja, which is located a few miles west of the Iraqi-Iranian border. Between 3,000 and 5,000 people died from a combination of napalm, sarin gas, mustard gas, tuban gas, and other chemical agents. And Halabja would ultimately be the thing that actually got the international community to start more loudly declaring for the war to, to end. There were countless heartbreaking sights which told stories of how parents had desperately tried to shelter their young from the invisible vapors. There's another incident that happens around this time that I think is pretty... we should talk about. In mid-1988, an American ship struck an Iranian mine laid as part of the, quote, tanker war, this other front of the Iran-Iraq war that was basically fights between and skirmishes between Iraqi and Iranian forces actually in the Persian Gulf. On July 3rd of 88... The United States this afternoon acknowledged that a missile from an American ship in the Persian Gulf shot down accidentally an Iran air passenger plane with 290 people on board. All of those people, passengers and crew, believed to have died in the crash. U.S. government initially misled reporters about how the plane was brought down, placing the blame on an overenthusiastic Iranian pilot. We believe that the cruiser USS Vincennes, while actively engaged with threatening Iranian surface units and protecting itself from what was concluded to be a hostile aircraft, shot down an Iranian airliner over the Straits of Hormuz. Captain, I'm not lying, Captain Will Rogers III, captain in charge of the Vincennes, uh, he was actually awarded a medal for his service in the Persian Gulf after the war was over. And defense officials and journalists have since identified that actually, no, it was Will Rogers who had brought the Vincennes into Iranian waters and that he should have been held responsible for downing of the plane. George H.W. Bush, who was on the campaign trail, 
to run as Reagan's successor at the time. When he was approached about what had just happened, here was how he described his attitude on the, on the situation. Quote, I will never apologize for the United States. I don't care what the facts are. After some last clashes in the summer of 88 and peace negotiations in New York, the war came to an end. About 180,000 Iraqis and 500,000 Iranians died, and there were about a million and a half wounded. Iraq ended the war with a standing army of awesome size, a million men under arms, five times as many as in 1918. They were armed with the latest rockets, tanks and artillery, but to pay for them, Iraq's economy had been mortgaged to the tune of nearly $100 billion. The quote that gets thrown around all the time about the Iran-Iraq war is predictably from Kissinger, who, while it was going on, was reported to say, it's a pity they both can't lose. But in truth, they did both lose. And Saddam had to save face after eight years by claiming it was a great victory. But in fact, after the war with Iran, Iraq would never be the same. And next week, we're going to look at the final blow that would make sure it would never recover in the Gulf War. But before we close this episode, I just want to mention one more incident that I think is not very well known. Near the end of the war, in May 1987, the Iraqis accidentally struck with two missiles a U.S. ship that was beaming intelligence about Iranian troop movements to the Iraqi army. This ended up killing 37 American crewmen. Now, you'd think that, especially given recent events, something like that would result in not only headlines, but also someone getting in trouble in the Persian Gulf. But in fact, Saddam shot off a quick apology to President Reagan and submitted to a brisk inquiry from the Americans. And Reagan decided not even to demand any compensation from Iraq. And why is this? I mean, by this point, we know that Iraqi lives don't matter to these people. We know that Iranian lives don't matter to these people. But here we see that not even American lives, not even troop lives, so sacred normally in our speeches and our culture, they don't matter either because it's just business. And I want to go out here with Reagan speaking at the memorial of the U.S. crewmen who died by the two Iraqi missiles. See you next time. See you later. Even at moments like these, then we must address directly the reason the USS Stark and her men were there in the Persian Gulf. You're entitled to know the importance of the role that their valor played in keeping our world safe for peace and freedom. It is a region that is a crossroads for three continents and the starting place for the oil that is the lifeblood of much of the world economy. And our role there is essential to building the conditions for peace in that troubled, dangerous part of the world. Our aim is to prevent, not to provoke, wider conflict. So it's a simple truth we reaffirm here today Young Americans of the USS Stark gave up their lives so that wider war and greater conflict could be avoided.